Experience the beauty and emotion of Lent and Easter with Christianity Today's newest devotional, Easter, in the everyday. Thoughtful readings from a variety of pastors, theologians, and writers invite you into the emotional stages of Christ's journey, from humility to hope to love. Beginning on Ash Wednesday and ending at Pentecost, this digital devotional is perfect for individual or group study. Get it today at orderct.com slash easter24. How do you know when somebody really is repentant or sorry for their sin? I'm not talking here about prayer for deliverance from something, you know, prayer for God to do something to save me out of this life, but prayer when you know that you've let God down, you know that you've completely failed. You've tuned in to the Transforming Discipleship podcast. That was a clip from the Dr. Christopher Wright, a very famous Old Testament scholar who lives over in London across the pond from where I am in Chicago. I uh, really enjoyed this conversation. He is a man who serves for Langham Partnership, a ministry that was founded by John Stott. And in this episode, we get a real deep glimpse at the person of John Stott and some of the thoughts about Dr. Wright, especially concerning that question, how do you know when someone has really repented? How do you know their heart? How do you know if you've truly repented? Let's Tune into the episode and hear how Dr. Wright unpacks this for us. What does faithful discipleship look like when our societies are in upheaval over injustice that's happening or arrogant political leaders that are taking stands on either side of of the pond or the the color spectrum? What things can we be doing as Christians? I'm giving us some things to think about, but what other ways can we be thinking in, in this context of idolatrous times? Well, one way that I, uh, in in my book, Here Are Your Gods, uh, I, I didn't want to be negative. I mean, the first part of the book is very much biblical, trying to see the biblical standards for political life and what idolatry is all about. And then in the middle, there's quite a, you know, looking at contemporary Western civilization and the idols that we see. But in the, the final section of the book, I do say that as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, we need to be Bible people. I think we need to go back and understand the story we're in. Um, people often in the political realm, they use the Bible, you know, like a machine gun. They just fire verses <laughs> in rapid succession about this or that to back up their, their per- personal preference. And I think we need a much more, uh, a much greater attention to the great story of God, you know, the story of creation and yeah. form of redemption and the future hope of the That's kingdom good. of God and build our values from a biblical base. I think also we need to be men and women of mission. We need to see that we are participating in God's mission in this world. And so therefore, we need to be followers of Jesus who are actually about the things Jesus was about and what he called us to do, to be making disciples, to be teaching them everything that, uh, you know, to obey all that God had taught them and so on. And then we also, of course, need to be people with the values of the kingdom of God, and we need to be people of prayer. But the point I wanted to make in that section is about what kind of prayer Mm. Do we just pray, you know, God bless the United States of America or God bless the Queen? You know, are our prayers just bland and vague or do we actually pray like, say, the psalmists do frequently for God to put down evildoers and to vindicate the oppressed and literally to break the arms of those who are crushing the poor? Now, that's the kind of prayer you don't usually hear in church. (laughs) Um, But some of those psalms are profoundly political 
but they're bringing God into the politics and saying, God, you've got to do something about this. So we need to be praying into the situation in much more biblical ways, I think. I want to jump on that right now and change the topic a little bit around mission. Um, but but hang on to this concept of prayer. I, I was, you know, you highlighted in your book, but when you think about some of the Old Testament characters such as Hezekiah or Elijah or uh, David when he throws the rock at Goliath, they pray these prayers, uh, they speak them to the heavens, and they they do what they're doing, and they ask God to intervene so that the world might know he is God, he is the Lord. In fact, Jesus, even in John 17, in the prayer in the garden, alludes to this. He's going to do this so that the world might know, so that all the world, all the nations in the world might know. Why is it so interesting? Why is that such an important prayer, perhaps, to, to put on the tongues of believers at different points in history? Well, perhaps it is reflected also in the Lord's Prayer. I mean, you know, Jesus says that what we should pray is, you know, our Father in heaven, may your name be hallowed, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as in heaven. Well, on earth is a pretty big place. Um, we are praying <laughs> just you know, that, <laughs> that, that, that the will of God, the kingdom of God, the name of God should be known and honored and done and so on on the earth. Now, that is a, that is a missional prayer, isn't it? It's praying yeah. for God to get about the business of glorifying himself on earth. And we long that God's will will be done. But then we need to ask, well, what is God's will? Well, Jesus was like, go to your scriptures. Look at the will of God as expressed in the Torah, in the Psalms, in the prophets. We know what the will of God is. The will of God is that there should be justice, that there should be peace, that the poor should be cared for. There is so much in the depth of the scriptures that tells us what that should be. And that then throws us back, as you say, to those prayers of the Old Testament, where people pray that God would act in some way, usually in deliverance, often Exodus-style yeah. deliverance. I'll come to the prayer of Solomon in a moment. They pray this in order that God's name should be known to the ends of the earth. Well, why did they want that? Because that's what God had promised Abraham he wanted. God yeah. says to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I'll bless you, and I'll give you this land, and so on, and through you, all nations on earth will be blessed. So the all nations, whole earth scenario goes right back to Abraham, and is fundamentally the mission of God, that all nations should be blessed. So people like the psalmists and others come along and say, okay, God, if you will do this or that, or whatever it is we're asking, then, you know, word will get out. <laughs> hmm. um, Literally, that's what Solomon says to God. Yeah. He prays in the t when he's dedicating the temple there uh, in that wonderful passage in 1 Kings 8. He's praying for, he says, God, I know you don't live in this temple. It's far too small. You know, even the heavens can't contain you. But what you put your name here. So when we pray towards this temple or come to this temple and pray, then here in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear us praying, then please do this or do that. And then he says, and when the foreigner who does not know your name, but has heard about your name, and is not yeah. part of your people, when he comes to this temple and prays, then says Solomon, do whatever the foreigner asks of you. Well, why should God answer the prayer of the foreigner? And Solomon immediately turns it into a kind of customer service program. <laughs> he says, look, if you will answer the prayer of one foreigner, what's he going to do? He's going to tell his family. They're going That's to tell good. other people. And before you know, your name will be known to the ends of the earth because yeah. people will hear that there's a God in Jerusalem that answers prayer. So Solomon sees this great 
in a sense, missionary opportunity yeah. of a prayer-answering God. And he, he, he prays something that God had not even promised to do for Israel, that he would just do whatever they wanted, whatever he asked. So, so do it for foreigners, uh, and then your name will be known. When was the last time you asked God to move in a deliverance kind of way in your ministry, in your marriage, in your life, in your relationships? When was the last time you did that so that those in those relationships or those contexts will know the power of God, so that they will know that it is God who's on the throne? That sort of prayer, to me, is also a mark of true repentance. Yeah. And I speak out of personal experience here. How do you know when somebody really is repentant or sorry for their sin? I'm talking, not talking here about prayer for deliverance from something, you know, prayer for God to do something to save me out of this or that. But prayer when you know that you've let God down, you know that you've completely failed. There comes a point when you say, and, and I remember doing it, Lord, there is a sense in which I don't care what happens to me, but don't let your name be spoiled. Yeah. Oh. Please, please prevent this situation from becoming something where you become yeah, badly yeah. spoken of, where this wow. shows up, you know, Christ's name badly, because I could not bear that. Please forgive me. Please, you know, deal with me according to your, your mercy, but preserve the honor of your own name. And I think it's when you get to that point that you're more concerned for the name of Christ yep. than for your own. We that see something that. real has happened spiritually. And we see that model laid out with David in his egregious behavior as king. He still is going to pen 73 of the Psalms in one of the most remarkable ones of repentance on the heels of that. We need to incorporate that kind of language into our repentance prayer. And we have to do that. We have to do that from the heart. It has to be from the place of the depths with meaning. I'm wondering, Dr. Wright, if you will tell us a little bit of your role for Langham Partnership International. I have a feeling many listening probably don't know what this organization is and does, and I think it's a great organization, and uh, I know you have played a significant role over the decades um, as the international ministry director. So maybe would you tell us a little bit of, of Langham's mission? What does it do and your specific role in the mission? I dare say many people have heard the name of John Stott. Or if you haven't, you should have. <laughs> the word Langham uh, doesn't really have any special meaning. It's literally a street name in London. There's a street called Langham Place, and there's a church there called All Souls Church, Langham Place in London. And for about 50 years, John Stott was the rector of that church from his, uh, actually, he became so when he was only 29 years old. So now John Stott then became quite an international leader around the world. He traveled very widely in Africa and Asia and Latin America what has come to be now be known as the majority world because it's where the majority of Christians actually live. We do need to mm. realize that at least 60 to 70% of all those in the world who are Christians aren't in the West. Now, this, this great church leader, John Stott, he traveled widely in those places. He met with uh, African church leaders, uh, lead church leaders in South America and elsewhere. And what he realized and what they told him was that the church in those places was often growing numerically very fast, very successful evangelism, especially in Africa, but also in Latin America. But it was growth without depth. That is, it was evangelistic numerical growth, but it was often lacking in the depth of resources for pastoral care and training, for teaching, for understanding of the faith, very few books, very little resources to help the church to grow in depth. So he established a number of ministries which are now brought together within what's called the Langham Partnership. 
he began bringing gifted men and women who were academically able and evangelically committed to do their doctorates, they're called Langham Scholars, to do a PhD in the Bible or theology and then return to teach in seminaries because he realized that seminaries and Bible colleges where future pastors are going to be trained if they get training at all. And so they needed to have uh, people teaching them. So now we have about between three and 400 Langham Scholars all around the world who are in positions of teaching and leadership in about 90 different countries in the world. So that was one program. The second was Langham Literature, because he realized that many of these pastors had no books at all, maybe a Bible and a hymn book, but nothing much else. So he, he famously said, pastors can't preach if they don't study, and they can't study if they've no books. So Langham Literature, from its earliest days, has been getting books into the hands of pastors and seminaries and libraries around the world, but no longer just Western books, you know, sending all our best to the rest, as we think, but rather what Langham Literature does now is stimulating the creation of evangelical writers, editors, publishing houses, and books in the majority world itself, in their own languages, uh, also, of course, in English, so we can read them too. So in other words, it's not just West to the rest, but the rest to the rest and also to the West, hmm. as uh, oh, like our director that. likes to say. So the, the creation of things like, for example, the Africa Bible Commentary, entirely written by African scholars for the African context, or the South Asian Bible Commentary and others in Latin America, the Arabic Bible Commentary for the Middle East. These are all works that are created indigenously with an evangelical foundation. And then so that's Langham Scholars, Langham Literature, and then the third program is Langham Preaching, which is where we seek to uh, initiate or to develop movements for biblical preaching in where we're now, that's now working between 80 and 90 countries around the world. That's to say, not just to go and run a seminar, but to actually try to change the culture of preaching to being more biblical, more clearly rooted in the biblical text, and yet faithful also to the culture. Mm. So we have um, trained national and indigenous facilitators to help pastors and other lay preachers, not just uh, ordained pastors, but lay preachers, because many of them are just ordinary people who are preaching, to train them in the basic skills of how to handle the Bible text and then how to move from a text to a sermon and to preach and teach the word faithfully. From a biblical analogy, I like to say that we are not so much the Apostle Paul, you know, the church planter, the evangelist. We're more like the Apollos hmm. of Christian mission who followed Paul to Corinth and was a great help to the church, we read, teaching them and systematically teaching and preaching the scriptures to the believers there. I like that a lot. And, and anybody who is listening outside of America and the West to this podcast, if you've gotten your hands on it and you haven't heard of Langham, I encourage you to, to Google it and check it out. The website is just langham.org, O-R-G, L-A-N-G-H-A-M, langham.org. So you knew John Stott, and he's passed now, and he has left an indelible mark all over. What was your relationship like with the Reverend Dr. John Stott, and uh, and how did you find yourself in this role uh, working in this organization with him? Well, of course, I first encountered John Stott as a student when I was in Cambridge in the 1960s and heard him give Bible readings and speak at theological conferences and so on, and I'd read many of his books. So he was something of a hero to many of us younger evangelicals in Britain at that time, in the 60s and 70s. And then, of course, there was the great Lausanne Congress in 1974, uh, when he 
really brought to the fore the need for evangelicals to get back out into the world and to engage with our culture and our society at the level of political and economic and social reality uh, and to, to bring the gospel into creative engagement with society, which many of us younger guys were wanting to do anyway, but he was actually giving us a theological foundation for that. I first met him personally in 1978 at a, a conference in England on, it was called the National Evangelical Conference on Social Ethics. And I got wheeled in because I had just completed my own PhD, as you earlier said, on Old Testament economic ethics. That is looking, so at, good. The, looking at the theology of land and property and wealth and family and all of those issues. And there's so much in the Old Testament that is economic uh, and social. Uh, and so I was wheeled in to, to do one of the Bible readings and be involved in this conference. I was ordained by then. I was just in my 30s. John Stott was the chairman. He was sat at the back as I did my preaching, which was a bit unnerving. Uh, but then <laughs> afterwards, he was kind enough to come and speak to me and you know, say he'd appreciated you know, my exposition and uh, would I care to have lunch with him? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you know, would you say Get no? Out of me, Cal. Yeah, no, you don't say no. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, got to know him and then he kept in touch because at that time I, I was an ordained pastor in, in a church in the south of England. My wife and I went and had tea with him. He sort of discerned my interest in theological teaching and also my interest in Christian mission and, you know, that background in my life. Uh, and so eventually when we moved to India, my wife and I to teach the Old Testament there for five years, he kept in touch. He visited us once when he was mm -hmm. traveling. And then when we returned to uh, the UK in 1989, he invited me to become one of the trustees of what was then the Evangelical Literature Trust, which is now Langham Literature. So from then on, that was 1989, from then on I was sort of meeting with John Stott you know, every few months at the various board meetings and things. So it was, a, it was a lovely friendship. I think what I loved about him most were several things. One was, and everybody says this, but it's absolutely true, was his humility. I mean, he was one of the most famous evangelical leaders in the world at the time, still is, but you know, he was genuinely through and through a man who was Christ-like in his humility. He mm. lived a very simple life, dressed very simply at a very small flat, turned all his earnings from his books and everything into the trust funds. So he was, he was deeply, profoundly humble. I think also I loved his theology because he was rooted in the scriptures as a whole. He predominantly preached the New Testament in his expositions, but he knew the Old Testament through and through, and he had this very deep understanding of the holistic nature of biblical faith. The, the, the gospel itself was good news for the individual believer. It was good news for society. It was good news for creation. There was a holism about the gospel, which found its way, of course, into the Lausanne documents and the Lausanne Covenant, and then eventually into the Cape Town commitment. Mm. And I think also his balance, his, his irenic spirit, he did not shy away from conflict. He was prepared to contend for the gospel, but he always did it in a way that was gracious, that was respectful. He was prepared to have conversations with people who he radically disagreed with. He didn't engage in mudslinging, uh, you know, and vitriolic condemnation of others. Uh, he was, I think, you know, he would speak the truth in love. Uh, and I deeply respected him for that. So he was a, he was a great man of God. 
I am blown away that you too will give away all of your revenue and proceeds of your own books to Langham. And it says that in every cover of every book, whether it's been published by Langham or IVP or, or et cetera. And, uh, and, and not only that, but you carry w- with yourself your own humility as well. And I know you wouldn't even tell us that if, uh, if I were to ask you. So I wanted to highlight that, but I, I just want to say um, you challenge me, Dr. Wright, to walk that way as well. Um, well, thank so you, you are, Oliver. Appreciate that. Yeah. So I have you for a couple more minutes here, and I just I want to. I'd be remiss if I didn't talk to you about the Mission of God. It's been one of your most popular books. If you were to tell us, in your own words, off the cuff right now, um, and, you know, what is the Mission of God? And I know you've written a massive book on it, so <laughs> I say it tongue in cheek. But what would you? How can we get it across to the guy at the pub, or at the soccer field, or wherever we are? Well, it's hard to beat Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. But as Paul says there, that God has revealed to us his will, his plan, his purpose, or his mission, in a sense that the, the phrase means this sort of the purpose of God. And he says it is that God intends to bring all things in heaven and on earth, which is the whole creation, into a unity in Christ and under Christ. Mm. So Paul says God's plan is, in a sense, the reconciling and unifying and healing of the whole of his cosmos. The whole creation has been broken and shattered by sin and evil, with all the fracturing that is meant both within the created order itself and between creation and us and between us and one another and between nations and families. All that sin has broken, God intends to heal and he will do it through Christ. Uh, and that is the big mission of God. Now, in, t- in that global cosmic sense of mission, of course, as with any great mission, there are multiple missions. There are, there are many ways in which then God get involved, gets involved in human lives at an individual level, uh, at the church level, in society, with being salt and light. So the mission of God is vast, but the great thing is that God calls us to participate in it. That's the amazing miracle that God says, come on, I want you in this. And so he calls Abraham and he creates this people of Israel and says, you know what? Uh, If you will only obey me and live in my ways, then you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And those are missional words. To be a priest was to be a middle person between God and the rest of the nation. And God is saying, I want you to represent me to the world and to draw the world to myself. And Peter says that's what we're supposed to be doing in 1 Peter chapter 2. And Paul says that's what he was doing with his ministry. He says that God gave me the priestly duty of bringing the gospel of God to the nation so that the nation could be brought to God. But if we're going to be priestly, we have to be holy people. That is to say, we've got to be different from the rest of the world. So in in Leviticus 18, God says to the Israelites, don't you do like they do in Egypt. You don't need those gods of empire and power and armies and chariots and all that stuff. No, don't be like that. And don't do as they do in Canaan, where I'm bringing you, where they worship Baal and the gods of fertility and sex and business and prosperity. You don't need that because I'm going to look after you. So God says, you don't need to be like these other nations. Be my people, live in my ways. And then he tells them what it means to be holy uh, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, the ways of compassion and truthfulness and justice and sexual purity and so on. So that's the Israel of the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, Jesus picks that language up in the great so-called Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel. And he says, Jesus, right now I want you to go and make disciples of all the nations. And he says, because all authority in heaven and earth is mine, which is Deuteronomic language, because that's yeah. that's God language. That's good. And then yeah. he says, 
baptizing them into relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, which is pure Deuteronomy. It's exactly what God says to the Israelites in Deuteronomy. So Jesus says to his disciples, I've made you my disciples on the basis of the scriptures. Now I want you to take my teaching on the scriptures and make disciples and teach them. Don't just teach them everything I taught you. That's just cerebral. You know, that's just mm-hmm. in the heads. No, teach them to obey everything I taught you. Yeah. Uh, that's moral. That's ethical. So there's a teaching to be taught. There's a life to be lived. And we are to participate in that as God's people. That's why I didn't only write the book, The Mission of God. Right. Is, the I, Mission of God's People was yeah. next. <laughs> that's a sort of missional hermeneutic of the whole Bible, the mission yeah. of God is. But it leads to the so what question. Then what does this mean for us if we are the people of God? Yeah. And so, yes, as you said, the other book published by Zondervan is The Mission of God's People, which is a biblical theology for the church. What, what are we supposed to be as God's people in the world, bringing both Old and New Testament together? These are some fabulous and very significant works that you have left us and given us to use. And I really hope that those listening today, if you are a part of a small group or you're a pastor of a church or you are in a parachurch organization, whatever it might be, I really hope you'll consider some of these books that we have referenced today. One that, that Dr. Wright has most recently written, Here Are Your God's Faithful Discipleship in an Idolatrous Time that was published in the spring of 2020. I really hope you'll consider getting that book and also the other two books, The Mission of God and The Mission of God's People, both extremely helpful and insightful for what does it look like to involve yourself in the great grand mission of God as he seeks to confront and unmask all that is not from him and of his created order. So, Dr. Wright, I have so greatly appreciated your time. I do want to just express great gratitude on behalf of smallgroups.com and Christianity Today. Thank you, Oliver. Great to be with you. We want to thank all of you ministry leaders who have tuned into this episode. If you are finding this podcast helpful for your ministry, would you do three things for us? One, would you subscribe to our YouTube channel? Two, would you give us a five-star rating on iTunes? And three, would you subscribe to smallgroups.com today? This podcast is also available on Amazon Podcasts, on your Amazon Alexa device, and on other podcast platforms. If you want full access to smallgroups.com, you can subscribe at a very low cost today. There's various plans to meet your specific budget. This will give you access to hundreds of Bible studies and tools to train your small group leaders and so much more. And finally, I just want to encourage you again to go get Chris's latest book, Here Are Your God's Faithful Discipleship idolatrous times. And remember, all proceeds do go to Langham Partnership. I've thoroughly enjoyed learning from Chris and have found this particular book to be deeply challenging and provoking for my own walk with God. Until next time, God bless.